you know, data is just subject to interpretation as well. It's, you can have glass half full, glass half empty, looking at the same data. And I'll give you a specific example on that. So we were looking at launching a pretty large initiative at Spartan, and one of the senior executives came in with data that said, he said, we should be doing this because 30% of our customers said they might be interested. Yeah. So I did. I, I guess I was the glass half empty in that case, but I was saying 70% of our customers said they don't want this. Mm -hmm. So where's that threshold when you look at data that determines what you ultimately end up doing? So data, yeah. again, is a, that tool yeah. that unless you're, you're instinctively interpreting it right, um, can lead you down the wrong path or just make you over dependent on, on looking at data and conversions and missing the big picture. In a world of data-driven metrics, is instinct used anymore to move the needle in marketing? Tom Hennel recently headed up lifestyle marketing for Spartan Race, which is the world's largest obstacle course race with over 200 events each year in nearly 40 countries. And before that, he was one of these mastermind founding partners of the North American Professional Liability Insurance Agency, or NAPLIA, which was named by Inc. to be one of the fastest growing privately owned companies in the world for five consecutive years. Two things stood out to me from my conversation with Tom. One, data creates the impression that marketers know their consumer's business, but it doesn't answer why consumers do what they do. Two, data is open to interpretation, for example, if 70% of people liked product and 30% didn't like product, to which one do you market? What is Tom's solution? Instinct. Listen to how he implements Instinct and how it's helped him drive his content to make Spartan Race and Naplia the successful companies that they are today. Listen up. Hi everybody, this is Brittany with Faces of Growth and I have with me today Tom Hennel and Tom, I'll go ahead and let you go ahead and introduce yourself. And if you could tell me any, just to start off, if you could tell me any particular story of growth um, that resulted from the marketing that you've done, um, whether it was something that turned out really well or that failed, and I'll let you go ahead and just open with that. <laughs> That's like a loaded question. That's like I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Tom Hennel. Um, where to start? So from a professional standpoint, most recently I've headed up the lifestyle marketing for Spartan Race. Um, Spartan is the world's largest obstacle course race and endurance company with over 200 events in almost 40 countries at this point. Um, I've been doing marketing for about 25 years, uh, including, I'll date myself, uh, working with the dot-com in the early, late 1990s, so the, the inception of the dot-com world. Um, I grew my own startup company with partners uh, to become named by Inc., one of the fastest growing private companies in the world for five consecutive years. Um, I've worked for the largest media agency in the world, um, developing online uh, marketing programs for Fortune 500 companies. And then um, we were just talking from a personal standpoint, I, I tend to be, I guess, a little bit of a free spirit. So next week, I'm going to walk from Boston to New Hampshire um, by myself to kind of raise awareness for what I consider an increasing uh, disconnection with nature. Wow. So. 
when people come up to me and they go, you know, you're at a party and someone says, so what do you do? Like, I'm jealous of the people who are like, that's an easy answer because I'm always like, what do I do? <laughs> so to answer your other question, growth. So um, probably the biggest growth story I have is um, two partners and I did start a, a startup company. It was a national insurance agency that specialized in professional liability insurance for accountants, CPAs, uh, investment advisors, attorneys. And so we grew that uh, over 12 years, as I mentioned, to become an Inc. 5000 company, not once, but for five consecutive years. Wow. And so the, the philosophy or the, the reasoning behind that growth um, was pretty, um, it, it's kind of a case study in content or inbound marketing, I guess. Yeah. Um, so the way we grew that really was, um, I grew it through the marketing side, was through content marketing, when content marketing was kind of first coming out. And um, I worked with HubSpot, um, which was kind of the, one of the, the first inbound marketing content tools. And as a startup company, you know, I, I didn't have a huge marketing staff, didn't have a huge marketing budget. And it was a way for me to create a perception in the industry as a, a thought leader, mm -hmm. um, as well as be an effective marketing tool. Yeah. Wow. We use HubSpot too. And I found it to be pretty helpful with all of our um, marketing ventures as well. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a cool tool because I've used it in a startup and I used it at Spartan as well. Mm -hmm. because it's, it's a tool that from a marketing perspective allows you to um, kind of circumvent your tech and your email teams Yeah, um, and do things really very quickly. When you were working with Naflia, how did you guys address the marketing to keep up with all of that growth that was happening? And I mean, I'm talking about marketing from like an on-site experience. Yeah, so um, I was the, the marketing guy and the web guy, um, and I handled that all myself. And it was really, so um, the, the, the interesting thing from the case study standpoint is really what we focused on was less about selling insurance and more about the value that we could offer our customers um, to help their business. Mm -hmm. And again, as a startup, it helped us kind of create this perception in the industry as that we were real serious here. We knew about their business. And as a much smaller company um, competing with larger companies, it gave us an online experience um, that we were just as large. And in fact, we were able to move quack, quicker, get things published faster um, because we didn't have a tech team. We didn't have to go to the web guys and go, can you get this up next week? I could just do it immediately. Wow. Yeah. So you were, you had to be super agile. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the funny thing is as a small company, you're super agile. And then as you grow, the larger you get, the less agile you get. And um, it's harder to be progressive in, in certain areas. Yeah. Yeah. So let's fast forward up to like May of 2017 when you became the vice president of lifestyle marketing at Spartan Race. Yeah. Yeah. So you grew that. <laughs> it was an event-based company originally, right? And then you grew that to becoming more of a lifestyle brand. And it was mainly through user engagement. How did that happen online from that perspective? What was yeah, so, going um, on there? 
Spartan is a is an event-based company. If you think about it, what they do is they they provide an experience, um, an obstacle course race that happens typically on the weekends. Um, as I said, they do about 65, I think, in the U.S. about 200 globally. Mm -hmm. And um, people think of it as an event company, but with any event company, you race once a year, three times a year, even if you're racing 10 times a year, what are you doing the other 355 days of the year that we can engage with you? Mm -hmm. So what Spartan did was they focused real heavily on editorial content because they knew they wanted to focus on nutrition. They wanted to focus on training. Um, they wanted to focus on lifestyle and what they call mind, um, the mind aspects or mindfulness. Um, so we developed a whole editorial-based website. Um, it's called life.spartan.com based around these lifestyles to, to not only engage our existing audience, but as an acquisition tool to bring in new consumers. Yeah. And in that process, and I guess with both um, Spartan Race and Naplia, um, what tips could you share with us about the use of personalization throughout that process? <laughs> um, well, I, I know personalization is a, a very um, important topic for intent. Um, you know, the reality is I don't see a lot of personalization online. Um, I think people do some segmentation and call it personalization. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we could do editorials. We did editorial stories focused on particular niche audiences that yeah. we thought we wanted to target. But again, I feel like that's more segmentation than personalization. Sure. Um, you know, personalization, I'll tell you a real quick story. Personalization to me is I'm a very casual guy. I wear T-shirts all the time. So once in a while I have to wear a business shirt and I go to the dry cleaner maybe once every two months, once every three months. Every time I walk into my dry cleaner, they greet me by name. Hello, Mr. Hennel. They ask about, oh, how's your son? Was he a junior now? Um, they never have to ask how I like my shirts done or when yeah. I want them done. That's personalization. Yeah. Um, and as a, do you know how much I pay for my dry cleaning? Guess. Um, a dollar a shirt? <laughs> Three dollars a shirt? I have no idea. <laughs> because it doesn't oh matter goodness. to me. It's wow. the experience. Yeah. So if you're a competitor coming in, uh, you're a new dry cleaner in town, how are you going to draw me away? You could offer 50% off, but I don't even know what I'm paying now. So I'm not interested in price. I'm not interested in convenience. Mm -hmm. That personalization becomes that moat around their business. Yeah. And I don't know how they do it, um, whether they do this with every customer, because I'm not that memorable a person, but <laughs> it, it's uncanny, um, that personal service. And again, how it takes away that whole um, commodity, if you will, of how much I pay for my shirts or where yeah. I go. Yeah. So, you know, the, the online experience, you know, unless you've got a logged in state, and even that, you're recognizing, oh, you can remember what people had in their cart or maybe what they looked at last. But how personal are you able to get it? You can put their first name in the email when you email them. But are you really creating a personal experience for them or are you just kind of segmenting on behavior? Sure. So if we were looking at even just segmenting based on behavioral yeah. uh, inside 
I, I, um, insights. What are there any um, recommendations that you would give to people as they're implementing that or trying to structure their segmentation process? Well, I think the main thing is to um, to focus on the value to the customer. So if you're segmenting, if you're personalizing, if you're categorizing, whatever you're doing, really understand that what that market segment is, what their pain points are, really what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's, that's kind of the worst case scenario as well, is like you try to personalize the experience, but when the person goes to that content, it's not personalized for them. It's not relevant to them. You know, a, a good example of that is um, we all use Amazon. Um, you know, you go and you look at business books or nature books and your feed gets pretty good that they start feeding you things that you like. And then you have that one scenario where like you go buy a My Little Pony for your niece and then for two months, all you see is My Little Pony. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, that's not a good personalization experience, um, right? That's them thinking they know who you are, but not really knowing who you are. Um, So anyway, it's always user first. Um, You and I talked about this before is um, as marketers, what happens is we enter the office, we take off our consumer hat and we put on our marketing hat and we forget what it's like to be a consumer. Right. And we, we push out stuff, we send disruptive marketing, um, we, we try to convert into registrations, but we're not thinking in terms of what does a consumer want out of this experience? Really, where's the value for them? Yeah. So how, um, when you're trying to get into the mind of your user then, how are you doing that? How do you connect with them? And yeah, so again, I think we take the step of recognizing that we're not personalizing it for everybody. What we're doing is we're, we're segmenting and we're looking at categories. So we're looking at, um, you know, CrossFit is a good crossover audience for Spartan. Okay. So understanding what a CrossFitter wants, they're very fanatical about their product. Um, they don't, it, you don't want to over push your product. Really, what you want to do is, is beef up their product, um, and then show how it it um, coordinates or complements with our product. Yeah. Because um, that's the other thing people do is is recognizing that it's really hard to change consumer behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to change consumer behavior, you don't say stop doing that, do this. You go, how can we help complement what you're already doing and, and how can we reinforce your current behavior so that it works with what we want you to do? Yeah. Um, what tools did you guys use to do this and what are your favorite tools to use for um, user experience optimization? So HubSpot, I think, is, is one of the, the best tools out there. Um, you know, we use Bounce Exchange. Um, we used Optin Monster, different things. But, um, you know, if, if a tool is really literally just that, right? It's a tool. It's a device to... Um, create a certain functionality, but it's only as good as the marketer, Uh, you know, (laughs) so a lot of companies look at, so a lot of, well, this happens a lot is 
companies look at things backwards, right? So they, they get sold on a tool and they go, how does this tool work in our marketing strategy? Rather than saying, what's our marketing strategy? And then what are the tools that will help us do what we're trying to do better? Mm-hmm. So they tend to try to fit a square peg into a round hole. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's where that intuitiveness comes in is like how to effectively use the tool because you can use, um, you know, and again, going back to attempt, you talk about the, the bad user experience of pop-ups or, or interstitials and, and such. Mm-hmm. And so you can use those to pop up and, and offer discounts and, um, you know, buy now. Usually what happens is you're too early in the consumer process with those. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the consumer is just being introduced to your brand and you're already offering them something to try to get them to convert um, rather than get them into the funnel. So a good example of, of how I think we effectively used it was, you know, in our Spartan has a, an e-commerce shop where we sell apparel, we sell shoes. So when you get to the shoe section, the pop-up in the shoe section is not get free shipping, get 15% off. It's six things that you need to know before you buy your next pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting to anyone, whether you're a, a novice runner or an experienced runner, that intrigues you to go, oh, what don't I know that I should yeah. look for? Yeah. So there, hopefully we're offering value to the consumer rather than saying, hey, here's 15% off, we're just a commodity, and really you're just going to go to Amazon and see if you can get it cheaper anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are there any tools that you have on your like wish list if Christmas were to come early for you? Um, it, well, the, the tool that I would want, which doesn't exist, you know, my ideal tool would... How do you measure um, emotional connection? Because your consumers coming in, you know, we think we know who they are. We think we know what they think about our brand, but we don't. You know, if you use the analogy, I, I like to use a lot of analogies, but... If two people go on a date and they're both professionals, so they, they like each other, they get along fine, they have great conversation. But if there's no emotional connection, then there's no relationship there. Yeah. So people, you can have a great website, you can have great content, but if you're not getting that emotional connection with your brand, you're not really capturing the interests of the consumer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking about knowing if you've captured their interest or not. Can you talk to me about your thoughts on data? <laughs> well, and that kind of feeds into my, my thoughts on data is, um, you know, data is, um, and I hate, I don't want to be negative about data because data has a lot of positives. Obviously, um, there's a lot of information out there that helps us do what we're doing better. But at the same time, I feel like data is a bit of a false prophet. Um People measure the wrong things, or they think that if we know what our customers did, we'll know what they're going to do. Um, and again, that takes away that instinctual aspect of it. Yeah. So, but you're always working in the past. You're understanding what your customer did, um, but you don't you don't know why they did it, um, and, and you don't know what they're going to do tomorrow. And you don't. What you really don't know is what they wish they could have done. Because they only had certain options. Right. 
right? So data, I think where data works is, um, you know, all of your marketing goals or objectives are based on a number of assumptions. Mm -hmm. So it's based on starting at, oh, we're gonna get a percentage click-through rate, we're gonna get a percentage email acquisition, we're gonna get a percentage conversion. And data helps you to quickly understand if your assumptions are accurate or where they're not accurate so that you can make adjustments along the way. But back to the, the tools scenario is data doesn't lead your strategy. A lot of companies think, oh, we're gonna get this data and it's gonna tell us what our strategy should be. Data should be supporting your strategy. And then, um, you know, data is just subject to interpretation as well. It's, you can have glass half full, glass half empty, looking at the same data. And I'll give you a specific example on that. So we were looking at launching a pretty large initiative at Spartan. And one of the senior executives came in with data that said, he said, we should be doing this because 30% of our customers said they might be interested. Yeah. So I did. I, I guess I was the glass half empty in that case, but I was saying 70% of our customers said they don't want this. Mm -hmm. So where's that threshold when you look at data that determines what you ultimately end up doing? So data, yeah. again, is a, that tool yeah. that unless you're, you're instinctively interpreting it right um, can lead you down the wrong path or just make you over dependent on on looking at data and conversions and missing the big picture yeah this is so interesting because i feel like today there's I've, I've talked with quite a few marketers and they are all about data and they're all about analytics. And I hear yep. you keep mentioning the word instinct and that's not, I mean, that is something that I've, I've heard in to some degree, but you really seem to hone in on that. So how do you, how do you develop that instinct? Um, how have you developed it and how do you also develop that in your team? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, it, there's probably multiple pieces of it. One is, um, you need experience to have instinct. Um, unless you're exposed to different things, you're not gonna understand um, how people do things and, and how the, the world works, I guess. Yeah. Um, two, it, it's um, not everybody probably has it, or some people may have bad instincts, um, but that's where you probably can pick out the best marketers or the ones who have the best instincts. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, again, not being too negative on data, but people who are too dependent on data either aren't trusting their instincts or don't have good instincts, right? Um, and then the third piece about like a developing it is you have to give people the ability to, you have to empower them to do things on their own, um, try things. Um, because if, if you've got people who are working for you and you constantly tell them how to do things, you're just teaching them a process. You're not teaching them how to instinctively learn through things and and hone their instincts, I guess. Yeah. So yeah. what happens is when the process stops delivering the results that is expected, they don't know what to do. Right. 
Yeah, this, um, you and I talked once about failure and what that means and it kind of reminds me about our conversation about that. And yeah. I would love for you to just like reiterate what your thoughts on failure is and how that, or I'm sorry, what your thoughts on failure are and what that looks like as you're developing your team and also your 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 own career. Yeah, um, it's a question I never do well with. And um, I don't want to be arrogant and go like, oh, I've never had failure. But at the same time, it's a bit of perspective, right? So just because it's not a success doesn't mean it's a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you if you label something as a failure, um, then it's a failure. But I guess I don't label a lot of things as failure. Um, the other thing is... Um, you know, from a you know, when you look at entrepreneurs, they tend to be actually pretty risk adverse. Um, I tend to be pretty risk adverse, so I make a lot of small bets. I'm yeah. never, I'm not the guy who's going all in. Um, so when a bet doesn't pan out, it's usually a minor um, failure, I guess. Right. <laughs> a minor outcome versus someone who's going all in and betting everything to become a major failure. Um, so I, I think that's really the way to, to look at failure is you, you make your bets incrementally and then any, um, and you learn, you learn from what works, what doesn't work. And as a result, you're not going to have an, any catastrophic failures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of learning experiences then. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of goals do you have for yourself that you measure against um, professionally? Like, um, yeah. So I think um, professionally, really, what I'd love to do is is make have more purpose and make a larger impact mm-hmm. um, with things. You know, when when you read books about purpose, it's always about working on something that's bigger than you are. Um, so it would be finding that role that's that's making an impact in the world, either on the nature side or on the people side, that's um, bigger than I am, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And this walk that you're about to <laughs> walk, I mean, that's like the diminutive version of what you're about to be doing, but that's going to be a pretty big opportunity for you to gain some perspective and find out what exactly you're wanting to hone in on even further I would think right yeah it's kind of twofold it's it's one it's a personal gives me an opportunity to, to look at my own perspective and, and obviously a lot of time to, to think through that and at the same time it allows me to um, from an academic or intellectual standpoint explore a lot of hypothesis if you will about nature and um, purpose and physical and mental well-being yeah. How do you think that's going to impact your marketing? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I'm hoping it will make me more of an empathetic marketer, I guess. You know, if, if you look at the, the journey of the walk, it, it literally starts in the, the, um, the heart of the city. It will go through the inner city into suburban areas, into rural areas, into wilderness areas. So you have this whole socioeconomic cultures that you're going to walk across yeah. and hopefully meet people from all of these these different areas. And, um, you know, I think um, 
when we look at, we we're going back to our discussion about personalization and, and segmentation is, you know, not all customers are the same. Um, and you've got a lot of socioeconomic factors that impact how people look at doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping um, it will give me an opportunity to, to explore some of that. Yeah. That sounds like it's going to be <laughs> a lot of opportunity and a lot yeah. of time to think about it, too. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, what does your future look like if you've finished up with Spartan? Like, where does Tom Hennel want to go next? So, again, I think I'm looking for something that's really authentic um, and has purpose. I think there's... Um, you mean the company itself is authentic and has purpose? Well, both personally and professionally. Yeah. Um, and I think um, I think there's a lot of opportunity still in marketing. I think the future. I think this instinctual marketing um, it is potentially part of the future. As we, um, you know, what happens in in the world is we. We're a pendulum, so we swing one way or the other. So I think right now we're swinging really heavy on data, um, data and analytics, and we're going to quickly understand that our customers are people; they're not numbers, um, and they don't always do what data expects them to do. So this intuitive marketing, I think, um, is an interesting aspect of the future. I also think um, there'll be more curation. In the future, again, I mentioned Amazon. Um, you know, it's the difference between a boutique and a, a warehouse store. Right. You know, you don't go to Amazon and just um, browse, right? You only go there if you know exactly what you want to buy. Um, and I buy plenty of Amazon, so I'm not dissing Amazon. I buy plenty of books. But um, I, I think there'll be a swing back on this pendulum a little bit more to um more curation, um, where brands want to own the experience a little bit more and own the, the product um, presentation a bit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I would welcome that. I think that that makes it authentic to the experience and the company and what they're trying to project. Um, and it's a lot more easy to connect with a product of some sort if you're able, I don't know, if it's if it's seriously coming directly from their intention and not just something that's being uh, whisked away to Amazon to present to to their user or to their um, customer. Yeah, there was a great article in um, Outside Magazine last month about Amazon. It, it was titled something funny like, Amazon is the future of the gear industry. Amazon is the death of the gear industry. <laughs> And it was like both sides of perspectives of small um, product companies needing a large platform that helps them get the scale they need and large companies going, you know, this is not the experience that we want. Um, it's very commodity driven. Um, so it was kind of both sides of the coin and, and very interesting to look at the, the economics, I guess, of yeah. um, these business models. Yeah. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me and having this conversation. This has been really fascinating to hear your opinions on data and instincts and a much a very human side of marketing. So, yeah, and I, I like that. I, I I would like to see the pendulum switch back to a little bit more human side of marketing and and recognizing. You know, if you're going to do personalization. 
there needs to be a human aspect of the, the marketing. Yeah. You can't personalize numbers. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for your insight. <laughs> you are welcome, Brittany. If you like what you hear, please give us that thumbs up on the Apple Podcast app. Also, check out our other episodes, including Charlie Cole from Toomey, Jeremiah Andrick from HTC Vive VR, Tom Hennel, formerly with Spartan Race, and Jeff Mosher with Verizon. And if there's anyone that you'd like to nominate to be on Faces of Growth, shoot us an email.